Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When English speakers co-opt the Matthaean expression, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, they inevitably descripturalize it. They twist the words of Jesus as though they refer to an inner psychological struggle or matter of conscience. I want to do the right thing, but my nature fights against it. After 400 episodes of the Bible as Literature Podcast, do you still need us to spell it out for you? On what basis do you assume that the spirit which opposes Peter's flesh has anything to do with Peter, let alone your make-believe inner struggle? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 40 to 42. This week's episode is presented in loving memory of Saleh Qanawati, with much love and gratitude for his life and the early years of my life, a childhood deeply touched by his zeal, imagination, and personality. I pray every day for his eternal memory and the well-being of his entire family. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening, believe it or not, to episode 400 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This is the four hundredth time that we have gotten together to talk about scripture on this program. It's good to be here, Richard. It's wonderful to be here. Thank God for 400 episodes. Thank God. It's interesting because today's episode deals with this saying about the spirit being willing and the flesh being weak. And almost always when we talk about this in a contemporary setting. We imagine what everyone imagines, that this has to do with an internal psychological struggle between what you want to do and what you end up doing because you can't control yourself. It's funny because, as you know, Richard, my oldest started at the university. (laughs) And she said, Pops, I got to tell you, When I go to my sociology class and I go to my psychology class, all I hear is you when the teacher speaks. (laughs) The sociology professor's critique of American culture sounds like you, Papa. And the psychology professor's critique of therapy sounds just like you, Papa, because the science of psychology has nothing to do with talking about yourself all day. And unfortunately, when we take that (laughs) self-involved 
self-preoccupied debate about what I think about what I feel versus what I should do and how it's going to affect my growth or whether or not I'm a good person or a bad person and how I feel about me. When we hear this admonition from Jesus, we overlook the most important point that we might be jumping to conclusions about which spirit Jesus is talking about. I like how you put that, Father. It's which spirit are we following? As we know, the spirit is what animates this vessel, the flesh. It's what allows us to do things. It, it gives us life, and we move around, and we move our arms and our legs. If we have a good spirit, then we do good things. If we have a bad spirit, then we do bad things. And if we have a holy spirit, then we do holy things. Holy things are defined by the Lord and his teaching. The idea is not that we have been convinced that this is the right thing. This is very different from the way that we conceive of psychology and the way that kind of the human brain works. The idea that we are supposed to do the correct thing according to the correct spirit, that's what this is trying to say. And it's also specifically addressed to Peter, because Peter has been the one to tout himself as the one who is not going to leave Jesus aside, who's not going to leave the path through scandal. He's not going to disobey Jesus in any way. Even if everyone else falls away, he's not going to fall away. And Jesus has to direct himself against that very high self-judgment of Peter's. And he came to the disciples and... <laughs> Forgive me for laughing, everyone. He found them sleeping and said to Peter... So you could not keep watch with me for one hour? I couldn't help but laugh. You just, throughout this section of Matthew, can't not feel sorry for Jesus. We just got through last week's program where Jesus is feeling this extreme sadness and anxiety because he doesn't want to do what his father is commanding him to do. And he swallows the bitter pill and submits to his dad, despite the fact that he can't count on his students to support him, to just keep watch with him. And he finally gets past that, and he comes back down to check on his peeps, and they're snoring. It's so disappointing. It's so absurd. It's ironically absurd. <laughs> we have a contrast between Jesus's fidelity and Peter's fidelity here. Often we don't compare them because we put Jesus in a different category, but Jesus is showing absolute fidelity. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do your will. Nevertheless, I'm going to do it. And Peter oh, whatever you say, I'm going to do. I'm never going to leave your side. I'm always going to do exactly what needs to happen. If everyone falls away, I'm not going to be the one to fall away. I won't be scandalized, not me. And then he falls asleep. And he can't remain watchful. And so the contrast here is between the loyalty, the fidelity of each of these two. If Peter wanted to show how faithful he was, if he was really that rock, he would show one tiny iota of faithfulness 
of trust, of obedience that Jesus has towards his father. But Peter doesn't even have a little tiny bit. This is the punching bag that Matthew keeps hitting. One author I read compares Peter the rock to the rock that the seed falls onto that grows roots really fast, but then withers because it's got no depth. Peter gets very excited, but his faithfulness has no depth. And so as soon as he sits down and stops talking, he falls asleep. I appreciate your point about this contrast between Peter and Jesus, because the text almost has this feel that Jesus finally got over his anxiety and said to his dad, not as I will, Father, but as you will. And then he comes back and he sees Peter snoring. Remember that watch is the name Gregory, Grigoreo. Peter is not alert. He's not keeping vigil. He's not watching. You can see again why early Christians loved this name Gregory, because it's the opposite of what Peter represents here. And he gets discouraged. And so Jesus is struggling to submit to the will of his Father, which is the Spirit that we're talking about, the Spirit of God. And Peter is beautifully representing, you know, kolbasar, all flesh. <laughs> I used to joke at seminary that in Hebrew, kolbasar sounds like kilbasa. <laughs> so he couldn't even watch for an hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here, this term, which is translated into English as willing, has no relation to the word thelima, which is what we associate with will, whether it's referring to the will of God as a noun or it's the verb God willing something. The term actually is prothimos, which has more to do with being ready to do something, being in a position to do something. The spirit is in a position, is ready to go. It's the flesh that gets in the way. The spirit's not holding back. Peter, in a sense, is holding Jesus back here, which is interesting, Richard, in terms of what's happening in the narrative arc of Matthew. Just like Peter wanted to hold Jesus back from Jerusalem, Peter, once again, is acting as a kind of satanic roadblock here. Prothimos is predisposed. The spirit is predisposed to do the correct thing, but the flesh is what leads us into temptation. Now, this struck me because Jesus, when he prayed to his father in the Sermon on the Mount, said, lead us not into temptation. Okay, well, it sounded like God was the one who kept us free from temptation. But here, it sounds like Jesus is telling Peter, don't go into temptation. Peter has a responsibility not to enter into temptation. God can keep us from temptation by offering his word, by offering his wisdom. But if you're not watching and if you're not paying attention, then you're going to head off in the wrong direction. You know, if we want to take one of the parables that Jesus has said that's been all about keeping watch and paying attention and being ready, all ten virgins 
were excited about the wedding feast. They were all predisposed. They were all willing to go to the wedding feast. But only half of them decided to get oil ahead of time so that they could actually be ready. So half of the virgins, because of their lamps, were led in the correct direction so that they could go to the party. Half of them didn't have anything in their lamps, so they would have gotten lost on the, on the way, or they would have held up the entire party, so they had to go a different path so they could go and get oil. So they ended up being late to the party and not actually arriving. Okay, so being ready is keeping watch, paying attention. When the master comes home in the middle of the night, you are to pay attention. You are to be ready by keeping your eyes open so that when he comes, you're ready to serve him as food because that's your job. So when Jesus says, pray so that you don't enter into temptation, he's bringing it back to this original point. Peter, like I said, is in a bad situation because he proclaims himself to be the rock, the solid one, the one who's always going to stick with Jesus. But in fact, he's not able to carry through because he can't pay attention. He just can't pay attention. He can't stay awake and focus on that thing that is more important than anything, and that's obedient to the word of the Father. I find it fascinating that Jesus keeps getting pulled away from the conversation with his dad because of Peter's inability to keep watch. And then Jesus goes back and repeats himself. Of course, ultimately, it's three times, and we'll talk about the uniqueness of the third interaction in next week's program. But that's why it strikes me, Rich, once again, that Peter is fulfilling his role as the Satan, as the obstacle. Because if he succeeds in pulling Jesus away from that conversation with his father, if he succeeds in weighing Jesus down, there's a possibility Jesus wouldn't submit to the will of his father and the crucifixion wouldn't happen. Maybe Jesus decides to go back to Jerusalem and raise an army and fight the Romans. Who knows? Maybe he takes Herod's place on the throne. Who knows what tribal fantasies Peter and Judas have in mind for Jesus? The point is, after encountering the snoring and snoozing Peter, he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father... If this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. So last time when we heard this prayer, there was an important difference. He said, not my will be done, but your will be done. This time he came back and said, look, if there's no way for me to get out of this, your will be done. So Jesus is saying the correct thing. He's sticking to his father's instruction. But Peter's in the way. I want to keep pointing this out. Peter is in the way. And it's a problem for Peter. He, if he were acting correctly and living up to the fanfare of his loyalty that he was bragging about at the meal with the Twelve, he would be walking with Jesus standing and keeping vigil with Jesus, supporting Jesus, encouraging him to do whatever the Father says. 
That's not what he's doing. He's giving Jesus every reason to blow the father off and come join him and take a nap. That's not what real loyalty is. Real loyalty, in terms of the way that Paul has established the household of faith in the New Testament, is loyalty to God the Father. The way that you show loyalty to your patrician, Peter, is not by pledging your sword to Jesus, but by pledging your obedience to God the Father. And then that controls how you act toward Jesus, but your real boss is God the Father. If you pledge your sword to Jesus, you betray God the Father and ultimately throw Jesus himself under the bus. This is the genius of Scripture, and it's the problem with Peter. Peter would like to think that he's loyal to Jesus, but he literally just won't do the simple things that Jesus asked him to do, let alone the hard things. And it is interesting. Why does Jesus keep going back? Why doesn't he just like pray, let them do their thing, and then come back? Why does he have to keep coming back to the disciples, even when Jesus is praying to submit to the will of his Father? He can't stop teaching. I was thinking this morning in our creed, we talk about Jesus and who he is, but one thing I'm always kind of sad about is that we don't have more in the creed about what Jesus taught, because Jesus in spite of this gut-wrenching prayer that he's praying, breaks it off so that he can teach and then goes back to praying. He won't stop. He won't stop being loyal to his calling, so to speak, like we like to say, where he is obedient to his father, even unto death. But what is his role? What is his job? It's to continue teaching up until the point that he's dead He's going to keep teaching. This is not a great job. I would want to have this job where you have to like literally wake people up to teach them. Although I do have to say Father Paul had to do that with me sometimes when I was in Hebrew class at the end of the day. Um, It's not a good position to be in. You're up there screaming your heart out and you got someone snoozing in the back row. But Jesus comes, wakes him up, and then goes back to teaching And then he goes back to praying and doing his thing. And then he goes back and wakes him up, teaches him some more. And he's having to keep going through this. He's teaching a bunch of people who are not interested in the teaching. And he literally has to wake them up so that he can teach them while he is turning his life over to his father in a very literal sense. That's how teaching works. And in fact, I've often said as a priest that you preach your way through difficulty because that's how the gospel leads you and your students, the community. It's the gospel that leads. The gospel saves you in a very literal and concrete way. The act of going back and holding Peter accountable to keep watch is not Jesus being bossy or telling Peter what to do. Jesus is not the reference here. The Spirit of God the Father is the reference. That's why this business of capital S, lowercase s, is idiotic. The person who translated this into English made the decision that this was a lowercase s and made it impossible for the vast majority of English-speaking readers 
because of the system of capitalization, to consider the possibility that Matthew is referring to the Spirit of God. Jesus is going through this, again, extreme sadness and anxiety over his fate. And instead of feeling sorry for himself, on the one hand, he's appealing to his father for an alternative. But on the other hand, he's preaching his father's will to his students. It's both and. Do you follow what I'm saying, Richard? And that's what pulls Jesus through. There's a kind of blueprint here for all of us. You have to submit and obey and also teach. And the gospel is pulling Jesus through his own ordeal in the gospel. It's right in front of us. I mean, I think back to when my dad died and you and I went through the book of Ecclesiastes together. The book of Ecclesiastes got me through. Studying the book of Ecclesiastes with you helped me organize my mind in a way that was edifying and organize my feelings in a way that was didactic both for me, but also for you and I and our fellowship as students together, and for those who went on that journey with us. That's how the gospel, that's how scripture saves us. And it's valuable because when we went through Ecclesiastes, the reference wasn't how I felt or what you thought, the reference was the words of God. And in this scene, the reference is not how Jesus feels or what Peter is doing. The reference is the will of God the Father by the power of his Spirit, despite the weakness of the flesh. So I I appreciate your point, Rich. We know that Peter was excited. We know that his Spirit got excited. But the Spirit that would animate him to do the right thing and to keep watch would be that Holy Spirit. So I like that you brought this up, Father, that there's this ambiguity. Which spirit does Peter have? Peter has his own personal excited spirit. But unfortunately, that spirit isn't enough to animate his flesh to do the work of God. It does the work of himself, and he's tired, and so he sleeps. That That's what his excited spirit actually drives him towards. The spirit of God offers you a will, the will of the Father, to do the right thing and to keep watch and to learn from the teaching. And as you said, Father, allow the teaching to order our thoughts and our feelings in a didactic way so that we can act correctly. If we get the correct spirit The correct spirit animates us, and our flesh obeys and does the right thing. So it's which spirit do you have? Which spirit animates you? And Jesus, we see, has the Holy Spirit, the spirit of his Father, because in spite of his will, not because of his will, in spite of his will, he does the right thing. I just want to take a moment at the end of our 400th episode, Dr. Benton, just to make an appeal to our listeners, because our hope, at least with respect to the Bible as Literature podcast, is to keep going and to produce hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes more, God willing. Everything is always in the palm of God's hand. We don't have control over anything in life. But even if we are able to do so by God's grace, it's not enough. 
when you look out at the state of religious content on the internet, the vast majority of things being produced have nothing to do with scripture, are interested in institution or money or vain talk about things that pertain to the flesh under the guise of our Lord Jesus Christ. And from the perspective of the scriptural teaching, that is more dangerous than all of the world's secular and violent teachings combined, because it's a secular and violent and greedy teaching disguised as Jesus Christ. Just as Father Paul explained in The Rise of Scripture, that the biblical writers had to counter Hellenism by producing a vast literature with enough books and enough stories to overwhelm the vast literature of Hellenism with all of its religious and literary diversity. So too, if we're going to challenge the modern world with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the invitation to hear the law of Moses. We need people preaching Scripture, studying Scripture, and doing their own work in Scripture. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever your day job is, it doesn't really matter. If you have the ability to read, even if you don't know languages, if you can look up a word in a dictionary, you can help join this work. So this is my appeal. With God's permission, it is our desire and our hope to do hundreds and hundreds, God willing, thousands more episodes. But we'd like you to do something, too. I am happy you brought this up, Father, because I think at this commemoration of our 400th episode, talking about the work that's required to make sure that this teaching keeps going, if you know something about scripture you should teach. There's actually an Ojibwe saying that when you learn one thing, you should teach four people. That's what perpetuates the teaching. Go and teach. Are they going to accept it? Are they going to like it? That doesn't matter. You don't know what fruit is going to come from the seed. I heard another wonderful expression that you can count the seeds in the apple, but you can't count the apples in the seed. You go and you plant, and you don't know what's going to come of it, but keep planting. So support organizations that are teaching the Bible. You know, I use Blue Letter Bible as a website that does a wonderful job of making sure that I can read the Bible wherever I am, make contributions so that people can continue to deliver just the Bible to people who want to be able to see the Bible. If there are other podcasts that are holding strict to the biblical text, not the biblical teaching, the biblical text, Listen to them, learn from them, but most of all, keep reading Scripture. Keep reading Scripture. Keep reading Scripture. Read it silently. Read it out loud. Read as you're coming in and when you're going out and when you're getting up and when you're lying down. Read it to your children. Make sure that Scripture is really what permeates your life, that you use your resources to make sure that Scripture continues to be taught, but really, it can be at no cost just to speak to your neighbor, literally or figuratively, 
the words that come from this book. If your parish is talking about adult education and someone says, hey, let's have an iconography class, raise your hand and suggest that instead you pool your resources to pay someone a small stipend to teach Hebrew to your children or Greek. Make the effort. Teach your children to memorize the Psalms. I'm not making this up. That's the advice of St. John Chrysostom. Nothing is new under the sun. It's just we have been lost for too long. We've forgotten what we should know. It's very important. Please take what we're saying seriously because it's extremely critical in 2021. The stakes are high. The country is in trouble. It lacks common sense. It lacks honesty. It lacks humility. It lacks community. And all of these things are the fruit of God's wisdom that he offers to us free of charge with a charge. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.